Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland, who are giving their place on the Leinster jersey to the Irish Heart Foundation for a day in support of the CPR for Schools programme. I have had an idea, Pat. What's your idea, Matt? My idea is I'm going to give it all up and go and play poker. It's been done, I'm afraid. By who? By the New Yorker writer Maria Konnikova, who a, a year ago this girl decided that she was going to write a book on poker. And so for the purpose of that, she took a year out and she immersed herself in poker. And Eric uh, Seidel, who is an eight-time World Series champion, was going to be her guide through the world of poker. And so this was This the is exactly my idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she took it to the next level because um, the book has now been put back for a year. <laughs> Because she's making too much money playing <laughs> poker. Again, this is exactly my idea. In January, Konakova won 86,000 by beating a 240-person field at the PCA Nationals. And then uh, she entered a proper full-on um, pro tournament and won 57 grand. And at that point, the book got pushed back. Yeah, sorry, lads. Yeah. I'm not going to be uh, up at 6 a.m. every morning banging out 2,000 words a day. Yeah. I've got poker to play. And money to win. And I'm probably <laughs> going to be up late doing both those things. Uh, she's obviously a, a smart cookie starting off here. She's got a, a PhD in psychology. And well. there's already a feeling that that might have kind of helped. But she's really taken she's to this like a... Well, yeah. <laughs> she's taken to this like a duck to water. I don't think it's cheating if you if you're just psych good. people out yeah. if you're just good. I, I think that's just poker. See, that's why I'm worried about your plan. I don't think you're... Hey, hey, no, why I was interested in this uh, story was that uh, she she knew nothing starting off. Nothing, yeah. I know a little bit. I am a better poker player now than when she started off. That's That's my... That's my I, I'm ahead of the curve that she started on. Yeah, okay, yeah. But maybe it was a benefit to her to know nothing and then to get a world champion teaching her from the building blocks up, you know? No, 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 no. I have, I, I'm ahead of the game here. I think that I should do this because do you know what I can do? I can go and make loads of money uh, and uh, pump it back into the Irish Times. We won't need to carry ads for this podcast. I mean, we'd obviously keep the podcast on. <laughs> the podcast is what I live for. Yes, obviously. When I was saying give it all up, I meant give up the you know the, the tawdry business of writing into the newspaper. Yes. But the podcast, you know, that, that could be our sponsor. Why don't you bring it on tour yeah. with you? Because uh, <laughs> myself and Declan will come with you if you're going to Vegas for the next few months. Well, Maria Konnikova, fair pity, and we will keep an eye out uh, for you as as time goes on. I actually went back and read some of her stuff in The, in the New Yorker. She, she's excellent. She's a, yeah. a, ter- a terrible loss to magazine writing. Well, if she ever gets around <laughs> to writing this book, I'll definitely buy it. Maria Konnikova is our hero of the week. We will talk to another hero for our purposes uh, later on. Shane Stokes will be in to talk to us about uh, the Giro d'Italia, which is starting in Israel this weekend, controversially. First of all, we're going to talk a little bit of uh, European soccer. It's been a mad week in the Champions League and the Europa Cup. Uh, Miguel Delaney joins us on the line from the London Indy. Miguel, how are you keeping? Not too bad, thanks. Um, Where to start? Uh, I guess we may as well go chronologically. Uh, Madrid, they found a way to do it again. It it seems to be their signature thing now that they kind of clearly flawed in places, but they still... They still do it in Europe. Yeah, um, I mean, also finding a way, even at this point, it seems to be very deeply within them because I've done a fair few Real Madrid games at home over the past few seasons. 
And it's always just the case, no, no, no matter, you must get used to this process where no matter how they're playing, no matter how badly Ronaldo's playing, you just know 73 minutes, they'll get the goal, the music will come on, and it, it's Madrid uh, you know, going through again. Uh, they just radiate this utter assurance. I think, I mean, and I was kind of thinking about it yesterday, already, already since Real qualified, about kind of how the, you know, the final and how it's set now. And while there's, there's this kind of, you know, 2004 or five belief about Liverpool that everyone around kind of Melwood is talking about, no one believes like Real can believe. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, the one thing about them though that I kind of, they are they are better than just belief. Like they they're oh, yeah. they're they're such an extraordinary team. I, I think some of the talk around them and look, you know, we can get bogged down a little bit in the RT panel over here, and you you are uh, blithely unaware of it uh, uh, living over there. But uh, this carry on that you know they're shocking defenders that they you you would think that the that they're a kind of a useless team that has poxed their way to the Champions League final, which is it's just clearly not the case. Yeah, I, th- I think what they are, it's, I mean, it's basically just the, kind of the, the ultimate example of a, of a super club in that sense. You know, the, the, this you know, dynamic that has grown in the last decade of w- one of seven or eight clubs with huge resources just assembling squads of stars. And, and to, I was on a brief digression, in all the debate about Ronaldo and Messi compared to kind of, the, you know, the uh, the greats of the past, like the, none of the greats, not say Maradona Barca or Maradona Napoli, didn't quite have this you know, structure of absolute quality hoarded together in the way Ronaldo and Messi do now. And I think Real are the ultimate example of this. I mean, if you look, it's not just their first 11, but some of the players that can come in. I, I don't think there's ever been a more broadly talented squad in the game. But so, sometimes you look at that team and they're a bit shapeless and you kind of think they, they, they feel like less than some of their parts. Um, and they're kind of not, not really convincing. And I, I think some of that maybe has to do with just the ways that our managers, and I think there's uh, one kind of coach in Spain has uh, disparagingly described him off the record as a clap your hands manager. But in that, he does nothing else other than just kind of, you know, facilitate uh, the atmosphere of the team. But then I suppose the point is then that the players are all so good that when it comes right down to it, they're able to take care of things themselves. And I remember it was someone around Madrid was saying after the Champions League last season, which I think is the, is the one out, out, of the four, out of their four runs to the final, the one time they really were excellent was was last year when they also won the league. But basically, Modric and Cruz kind of suddenly impose a bit of shape in the team that isn't there tactically in the way, say, a Barcelona or a City would have it. And then after that, they've just got the individual quality to step up. And it's almost like they, it's as if they've got this kind of critical mass of brilliant individual players that no matter what's happening, they'll just have enough to get to get through. The, this season, Miguel, like Malachi was saying there, people are delighting in this idea of suggesting that Madrid aren't that good. But they've actually taken down PSG and uh, and Juventus and Bayern Munich en route to this final. And they have more points in La Liga than Barcelona since the start of the year. It's kind of a false narrative, really, to suggest that they're that they're not that good, isn't it? Yeah, completely. I mean, there's, there's, there's clearly something uh, re- really strong in the title. I mean, even though they've only won one league in that time, you know, to, uh, to 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 win three three Champions League out of four takes something, um, but it, it is still just a, just a, it, the issue. I think ultimately comes down to this weird contradiction that it doesn't feel like they're making the absolute best of what they have, and yet they're still they're they're they're, they're on the verge of achieving the gold standard feat of three European cups in a row that hasn't been done since nineteen seventy six. 
It's kind of how um, they measure themselves too, though, isn't it? Like we'll say Barcelona yeah. wanted the title this year, but Real Madrid have always measured themselves out in European Cups. Yeah, and I suppose Real... But it's actually quite interesting, that, because, I mean, it's still Real are the team that... I mean, they've won far more titles in Barcelona... Uh, even right through that spell in the uh, in the fifties and sixties, so they actually only won two league titles and they won five year big cups in a row. But then immediately followed it by winning nine leagues in the next ten. Throughout the eighties, they won five leagues in a row. So I mean, this is a club really that characterises by success. I think there is a certain frustration that Barca have become the league team, but that's then only kind of accentuated the uh, the desire for for the competition they really see as theirs, uh, the the Champions League. Something, Miguel, that I know that that you've written about and picked up uh, an awful lot on um, is just the, the sort of the wildness of the of the Champions League this year. The the mad score lines that there have been, the level, the just the heavy level of scoring on, on all sides. And I mean, Liverpool, just to move on to them, have, have obviously played a, a, a huge role in that. Um, it is. Um, it's shaping up to be a final. I mean, <laughs> I was saying to somebody the other day that sure, the final will probably just be 1-0 and Ronaldo will score the winner. Like, uh, because, you know, sport kind of befuddles us from time to time. But um, on the face of it, that's really not how it's going to be. Yeah. And I was actually thinking about this yesterday when I was you know, trying to do a piece and kind of taking in two semis and, and the whole season. That I suppose the era of the kind of tense, low-scoring final or basically, our, the, our, the, you know, our idea of a 10th scoring final, something we've probably, you know, become accustomed to in the last 25 years of the Champions League. And it, it kind of, it goes hand in hand with a skill that we haven't really seen at all this season, which is the ability of top clubs to kill ties. I mean, I was thinking about it yesterday when I was doing a piece with the Indian and all this, but with the positions that Real and Liverpool were in after the first legs, if you go back, maybe even what five, six years, and certainly to kind of the mid two thousands, the mid nineties, one team is two one up from the first leg, literally five two. You would have expect expected not necessarily a dull second leg, but basically they would have just put the hole in the game. There would always been that kind of distance between the, the two the two sides, and they would, they would have just made it through with a quote unquote professional performance. They would have killed the tie, and that hasn't happened at all this season. We, we've seen we've seen no one do it. Uh, even, even like, in fact. Advantages from the first leg have seemed to only lead to the most chaotic second legs possible. It's, it's happened tr- throughout the season. And even the one manager, I suppose, that you would think should have or should have been capable of doing that with Manchester United, Jose Mourinho, when they had that, that nil-all from Sevilla, and what does now seem a bit of an anachronism of a desire of a, of a result, that, that kind of nil-alls away from home just aren't, aren't, aren't great anymore because I, th- I think we're in the... This season's the highest-scoring... European Cup campaign since 1990-91. The goals per game were 3.4 or 3.2 and then it was 3.22. Um, but yeah, so it's it, it's just led to this and it, it, and it is as if this kind of this goal this goal fever for want of a better phrase has just infected every team in the competition because they know it's as if they know no league at the mo- or no lead at the moment is unsurmountable. And, and once someone does it once so say Barcelona PSG last season it just kind of sets this new template. And I think maybe that's what's fed into this idea that, that we're going into a Champions League final and, uh, you know, you'll find people say, sure, no, neither of these sides are any good, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> it's probably it, like, I mean, just I suppose just the fact that when a team can cough up a chance so easily, as both of these can, it does almost colour perception of the entire team. And there, there is, I suppose, a much wider debate to get into here, a much wider discussion about 
why we're seeing this. I think about kind of the coaching of defenses. Um, and it, it, it was one thing that actually Wenger, um, for, for, for all his falls and for all the sadness of him going, uh, w- one thing he was always very astute on. I remember about three years ago, uh, in one of his in one of those press conferences where he kind of you really enjoyed the discussion and kind of really wanted to get into something. He was talking about how no one is training skills for centre halves anymore, and that in turn is uh, you know is, is no no one is training kind of skills for strikers because they're not go- they're not going up as and into battle. He pointed out all strikers and centre halves are coming from South America because in Europe all the coaching academies are so. Not sanitized, but they're basically all training a generation of universalists, as he said. Players that are basically all Zavi-like central midfielders. And I think that, and that's probably why we've seen this kind of high technique or you know high technical high technical quality going forward in the Champions League season, but maybe a certain openness as well. And I think that's probably as well multiplied then by the fact it it feels like a generation of more attacking coaches to go to go hand in hand with. I mean, who would you really describe as maybe maybe pragmatics to word rather than offensive, but you know, managers more willing to go deep, to go tight in the in the old way. Maybe in the in the Champions League other stages, he's only Mourinho, and then Simeone in the Europa League. Do you think the chaotic nature, Miguel, is because we're halfway in between two uh, revolutions, if you like, we're we're moving towards something, and we're after leaving, say, the Guardiola. Um, Tiki Taka controlling a game era behind and maybe that's actually playing into Real Madrid's hands because they've got such a talented team that if you if you open out a game and kind of everybody has a go at attacking the team with the best attackers are ultimately going to come out on top but I still t- I mean I think the difference is still that the best sides and again this this well it, the best side doesn't necessarily win the Champions League even if they do it three, three, <laughs> three times in four years Uh but I think the the best sides and the ones that are winning leagues, which I suppose is the one where there isn't the same allowance for fluke or or your results aren't quite as influenced by freak by freak or luck or kind of or a chance. The bet the sides winning leagues are still those who kind of disorganised attacking. I think that that's really the the year we're moving into, and I think that's why this debate is growing about whether a coach like Jose Mourinho is being left behind. The the like the level of attacking cohesion that Guardiola strives for, and that most of the top coaches, I mean the one of the phrases used is kind of automatism is because so many players now basically learn off all these rehearsed moves and how, how to variate from within them. Uh, I, think, I think that's where the game is going now. And I, as regards, I actually think City should still be absolutely kicking themselves about this Champions League season. I, I, I think they're the best side in, the, in Europe at the moment. And just because of the fact they maybe came up against a side that are suited to play in them. And I think Guardiola did have a bit of a he, he, it was almost like a, a little bit of a complex about how Klopp played, how Liverpool played for that game, that it kind of skewered their, their whole Champions League campaign. Well, let's talk about Liverpool a bit. Um, this is a big weekend for Liverpool. I, I, they, you know, they obviously they've made the final. It's a fantastic achievement. Uh, but if they don't win that final, they, you know, they they need their league position to to make it in again next year. And um, they they did look tired the other night. By the end, yeah, yeah, and you, I mean, you only have to look at the sub bench as well. There's, I mean, there's, there's no midfield on it. Uh, they do have issues. I mean, they, they are stretched. Uh, I do think, for, as regards the final itself, to be a two week break in between the end of the league and the Champions League with nothing in between. So I think they will be kind of back to something like their best, or back to something like themselves for that for that uh, for the final itself. 
But it does feel like they're limping towards the end of the league a bit. And this classic thing of uh, the Champions League kind of draining your resources in that way because they, they have looked just flat and fatigued. In the league. I mean, it's, it's two draws in, an, or in a row now against teams they should have been beating. Um, and I, I, But I suppose, to be honest, this, this points to why whether they win the Champions League or not, Klopp is still, to be honest, I, I think drastically overachieved at, at that club right now because... Right, well, Liverpool's resources are, are growing. I mean, they, they spend seventy-five million on Van Dijk, all the rest of it. It's still, this is still a club that Champions League qualification alone, like Spurs, hasn't been guaranteed over the last decade. So to suddenly make it feel like it should be guaranteed is 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 itself uh, successful management. And 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 I think and the strength of their squad shows how much they need to invest. I mean, it's it's such a small squad really compared to both of the Manchester clubs. Klopp has had a, a superb record, Miguel, in the transfer market over the last couple of years. He basically hasn't put a foot wrong in how everything's come together. And he is a completely systematic manager in many ways, isn't he? Yeah, and I think, to be honest, it's, it's a shame he's going to miss the final and, and the next year of football, sadly. But the ultimate example of this is Alex Oclay-Chamberlain. I mean, I always would have many, I think, a role piece at the time. But when he decided to go for, our, for Liverpool over Chelsea, go, what's he doing? The, you know the kind of the goal of him almost think he can play in midfield when there's a, such a such an obvious position from that like Antonio Conte would clearly use him as a as a as a wing back and he looks like he'd be really suited that position but I think it seems obvious now that Klopp had seen what he could be as a midfielder had un- undoubtedly told him this and that was completely proven true and that's and I think and, and the same probably applies I mean, it, it's the fact I mean. As recently as October, November, the talk was still that Coutinho was Liverpool's best player, with Salah not quite at that at, at that discussion. And now <laughs> you almost forget Coutinho was in Liverpool's squad this season, uh, because and I think again that's because it probably suits Klopp's overall approach better. I mean, he had that he has that kind of famous quote before: "The best playmaker is uh, is actually gagging pressing or winning the ball close to the opposition box." So in the way he plays, he doesn't really. A playmaker like Coutinho doesn't really suit him, but players who can win the ball and then players of pure pace like Salah, uh, like Mane, uh, do suit him. So it, it does feel as if he's kind of forensically kind of targeted certain players, certain styles for, for that system. The week was rounded off last night, Miguel. Uh, Arsenal went out of the Europa Cup against uh, Atletico Madrid. I know you uh, you have a very soft spot for, for Wenger and, and it's kind of sad to see it finish up this way. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot I'm on social media, you get a lot of these responses and of these of this nature, but like, oh, you, you criticise them so much and, and, and now look, look look how you all turn. But that's not, I mean, to be honest, I, I think really he's been definitely past his best since about 2011, 2012 and really should have gone 2014. And so it, 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 half the shame is that he did, like he was so stubborn, so obstinately trusting in his idea like he right up to now he, he thinks he should still be in that job he, he, he thinks his ideas for Arsenal will still come off against all evidence but you can still think that and have sympathy and, and want him to go out in the right way and I think even for for all the people talk about the FA Cup in 2014 is the right way to go out which it probably was maybe but a European trophy would have been an extra level to that because he's, he's never won one Um, actually had he played against Marseille in the final given they were the first club he truly had a real complex with because essentially they they, they cheated his Monaco team out, out of trophies. 
have, have been relegated in 93 for, for match fixing. Um, you know, it, it would have all tied everything together so nicely. Uh, and But ultimately, it should, rather than tying everything together so nicely, this Europa League campaign basically kind of showed, or, or this semi-final, showed why it's time to leave. And, and that is sad, though. I think for all the talk about 8 million a season, you know, and him kind of, you know, putting himself ahead of the club, I, I don't really buy that. It's just, this is someone that, <laughs> great, one of the, he believes an idea more than anyone. And on a human level, it's, and I, I do like Wenger, I think I like going to his press conferences, but it is sad to see it end like this for, for someone like that. And it's, and it's even sad now that it feels like the, you know, the decade and a bit of, I wouldn't say failure, but of just not, not looking very memorable. It, 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 it's almost as if it's come to the point where it's, it's outstripping how brilliant that first decade really was, hmm. which is also sad. I found myself wondering, Miguel, last night, what would Arsenal look like if they took the Atletico Madrid manager? Yeah. Uh, well, probably a bit more like... Uh, I mean, after all the revolution that uh, Wenger has you know, been responsible for in this club, how he made this you know, internationally uh, admired team who plays, you know, purest football, particularly around kind of 2000-2004, it will be back to 1991. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Spanish George Graham, is that what you're calling Diego yeah. Simeone, yeah? Well, maybe, maybe a, a little level above that, but yeah, it, it would be. <laughs> it's a, well, it could be what they need anyway, you know. That, yeah, that, yeah. Obviously. But actually, one thing, I think Johnny Liu made this point in, our, in his piece last night from the game, he was in Madrid, but uh, it's, it's easy forgotten now. But Atletico basically have the disciplinary record that Wenger did in his first few years at Arsenal. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing how that's completely like that's wiped from history now. That that they were. Yeah. They, they, you're exactly right. There was a time when every red card brought like a card count, and they were up to like whatever it was, fifty six in the last four seasons or whatever it was. Yeah, com- completely. And I, I, I know. <laughs> Again, another another strength that his teams have lost. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Listen, Miguel, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, that was great, and we'll uh, chat to you again somewhere along the way. Cheers, lads. Thanks. Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland, proudly supporting the Irish Heart Foundation and its CPO for Schools programme, equipping secondary school teachers and students with the skills to save lives. In the Irish Times Bumper Bank Holiday Weekend Edition, the magazine meets the team behind Ireland's hardest-to-book restaurant, the Michelin-starred Heron and Grey, as they embark on a new adventure. In Ticket, Patrick Frayne asks why Ireland's top musicians shun the Eurovision, while Gordon Snell remembers the pleasure of working with his late wife, Maeve Binchy. A decade after Bertie Hearn's resignation as Taoiseach, Geraldine Kennedy, Fintan O'Toole, Pat Leahy and others consider how history should judge him now. In Home and Design, Dermot Bannon advises on how to get the most out of your architect. And in Sports Weekend, get your hands on our indispensable four-page pull-out guide to the upcoming All-Ireland Hurling Championship. The Irish Times Weekend, your bank holiday weekends in good hands. What else have we got this weekend, Pat? The Sunday game is back, Malachy. Hey! Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sunday evening, 9.30. Now, admittedly, it's mainly a preview show for the for the coming season. It is wholly a preview show, I'd say. I'd say they'll just about squeeze in highlights of Sligo and London. Unless, uh, unless London win, of course. But, see, that's the thing. Um, New York are playing Leitrim as well. Uh, you you kind of think there could be a shock in both those games. Well, put it, a shock. I, I was thinking at the start of the week, I was going, do you know what? 
shrewd. I'm shrewd with this GAA stuff. <laughs> mm. I'm going to check out. New York have some. They have some serious players, and Leitrim really aren't up to much. I'd say. I say. I think I'm going to go here to Paddy Power, take them for all they're worth. New York are eleven to eight. It is the shortest odds New York have ever been for a game. Like the handicap is one point. Wow, that is ridiculous, <laughs> isn't it? The um. Because basically, this is their one game for the year. Um, when they played Curfin recently mm. in that challenge game, I kind of thought, oh, wow, they must have uh, plenty of money over New York to be able to kind of invite Curfin over and all that. But it's not that. It's a complete necessity. They have no also league Curfin games, paid, yeah. no championship yeah. games. Also, Curfin played their, paid their own way. I didn't know they that. They went over. I think they organized like for a fundraiser for themselves once they got over there. But And, and they played them pretty much straight off the plane. Um, but New York beat them. Like New York have some serious players, right? So the Jamie Clark is the one that that's caught everybody's attention. Uh, also, Tom Kniff is our captain. Uh, like played played in all Ireland finals for for Mayo. Neil Collins is a terrific centre. Would be playing centre back for Roscommon if he was still here. Uh, he's a, an excellent uh, young player. Uh, the Dalton McDonough, a very pacey guy, uh, sort of a wing forward from Meath. Um, they've got a couple of other lads like it is a, on paper a, a pretty you know for the standards of the game a pretty strong team um, and Leitrim had a rotten league like they really had a bad league they played played. they lost their first three games they gave London a walkover their game against Waterford was cancelled in the snow like they just they'd, they got two wins out of it they haven't played a game I think or middle of March, more or less. Um, so, like, everything is there. Everything is ripe. They, they, I, I saw Sean Moran writing during the week that the, the one thing about it is that uh, every time you kind of fancy New York, and there have been times down the years that you kind of go, oh, you know, something could happen here. Those are the times they get blown out of the water. Mm. Like, there's no, they have no shock factor here like they had two years ago against Roscommon. Uh, when they came from absolutely nowhere and ran them to a point, like scared the scared the life out of them. Emlyn Mulligan is back for for Leitrim. Uh, he missed the whole of last year with a cruciate, and like he's a fantastic player. You know, he's 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 as good as Jamie Clark. Like so, um, Sean did also point out that this is their twentieth effort to win a game, it, yeah. and that they've lost the previous nineteen by an average of thirteen point two points. Yeah, they they uh, and like there's just a load of hidings in that. But as I say, they ran us common to a point a couple of years ago. They were there or thereabouts with Sligo last year, up until sort of about 15, 20 minutes to, to go. Like, that's their thing. Justin O'Halloran is their manager. He was sort of saying during the week, like, they kind of, they want to be four or five points up with 15 minutes to go if they have any chance, you know, because they're just not battle-hardened. They have no games. They're playing each other. They're, they're As he said, we're basically have the same lads playing against each other for the last four months in in-house games, that's why the Carrefin game was such a big deal because, like, they get no opposition. Must be those if you're the guy who has to mark Jamie Clark every night. I'd say so. Yeah. Well, I, I, Jamie can be flighty enough now. I say there's a few nights now. Jamie's turning up to to training in Gaelic Park. Going, ah, lads, I'm not sure I can really be arsed tonight. Um, what about London? Um, about London Sligo. London Sligo is an interesting game too. Like the. Last time London won a game, it was against Sligo five years ago um, when they went on their great run to, to the Connacht final 2013. Um, they had the element of surprise that day. It was actually one of the London players played 
first Lego that day, uh, McManus lad, uh, who was actually sitting during the week. Yeah, we were totally complacent going into that game. We totally didn't give them any respect. We just thought we would turn up and win. Uh, which you can say now, mm-hmm. as an ex-LIGO player, I don't know if any of the current LIGO players would even who who were playing that day would even admit to that. But he just said, "Yeah, we just thought we'd turn up in hockey London." Um, so there's there's chance like London have a fair chance. Like London are an interesting team. I think anything up to half a dozen, maybe even seven of them are English born. Um, like it's not, it's a totally different sort of ma- team makeup than than the New York team. Like it wouldn't have the stars of the stars in inverted commas that 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 New York team would have. But it has a solid foundation and a solid base of players. Uh, their future. I, I talked to their manager Kieran Dealy earlier in the year. Their future is English lads, English born players. Uh, you know, second generation Irish people who are going to be playing year after year after year. Like, they only have one player who played uh, in that Sligo game five years ago. There's only one of them left as the captain, Mark Gotcha. Like, that's the turnover of players in London. A whole whole generation has moved out and and, and, and replaced them. But having English-born players would give you the continuity that that's the New the York lads yeah. don't have at all. Totally, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're interesting. Um, there's a couple of interesting stories in it. There's two um, two brothers might be playing against each other. Uh, there's the Carabine brothers uh, from Sligo. Uh, one of them's in London. I think it's Sean. No, sorry, David's in London. And Sean is on the subs bench for Sligo. And there's talk that if, if Sean does get on, they will actually be uh, marking each other, like one's a wing back and one's a wing forward. So that would be interesting. Uh, London are unlucky. They're, they're missing a couple of players through injury. They have a really good corner forward, actually, who would be on the Monaghan squad, a guy called Fergal McMahon, won a minor Ulster title with Monaghan a couple of years ago. And it's seriously, like, very, very handy inside forward. He did his shoulder earlier in the year, so he won't be playing. Um... But again, like it wouldn't be a massive, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't shake the earth now if London managed to to beat them. They had a decent league, actually, you know. They they've I think they is the highest ever finished in Division Four. I think they finished fourth. Like they're not a bad side. They much like New York don't get any challenge games, but they do have a league under under their belt. Like they they did have five six games uh, in the league and. Um, they could do something, you know. They 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 are a they are a better long term bet than New York. New New York will bubble up with a handy team every once a, once a decade kind of thing. Whereas you know London are a, a reasonable long term proposition, um, and they might you know you wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if one of these games went to the the Fardners. It's such a strange low key start to the championship every year now to have these. Games abroad, but if for one of them, if one of them pulls off an upset, it'd be great. Actually, yeah, I guess the only the only difference there is that this year, you know, most years that 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 low key start happens, and then there's no other games for like three weeks, kind of thing. This year, right? So this they're getting the the foreign games out of the way uh, this weekend, and then next weekend is the the big bang start. So it isn't just as and and look, there'll be no bigger bang than if one of these teams win. The Giro d'Italia is the first big cycling event of the year, or at least the first one that outsiders like us uh, stick our nose into. Shane Stokes has come in to talk to us about this year's race. Um, Shane writes uh, cycling for the Irish Times from time to time, but also uh, is the news editor for uh, the website cyclingtips.com. Shane, it's starting in Israel this year, and of course, 
there's plenty of controversy about this. It is something that, that you feel felt strongly about, strongly enough about, not to actually go to the start of it. Yeah, with, with Cycling Tips, we got an invite um, and I just said, look, I'm really not um, interested in going to the race. Uh, and and I think cycling is, it's it's a sport that travels to, to a lot of different places um, and it's a sport which, which is always chasing sponsorship and looking for money and increasingly in recent years, um, Middle East, uh, areas like that, uh, because I guess because they have wealth, um, have been sponsoring teams. And they're um, on untapped markets really in terms yeah, of cycling. Yeah, sure. Really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Giro d'Italia has gone to Israel this year. It's the first time actually starting outside Europe. Uh, so, yeah, but I mean, anybody that follows the news will see about the border protests and people, you know, the shootings that have been happening and there's been two journalists killed. I think about 50 people killed, uh, f- uh, estimated over 5,000 injured. Um, and uh, but, but even before that, when, when the race was announced, um, obviously there was controversy and... I've in recent years not gone to the tour of Turkey and I had gone previously to that mm. um, and these races will send you invitations because they want coverage uh, so but then when problems happened in Turkey uh, and I have a lot of friends at the race and people are really you know like at the race but I kind of went okay they're locking up academics so I yeah. don't think accepting invites to go to cover this race which is organised by the government is um, is really Correct. We are guilty in all of sport, really, of of turning blind eyes and deciding that that sport is about sport. And and of course, we can't pretend that these things exist in a vacuum. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And and inter- interestingly, when the race was launched, which I think was last November, where where it was made official, now it was rumored for a long time that the race would be starting in Israel. They said repeatedly, "Oh, sport is not about politics." Um, but anyone who's followed sport, I mean, this continuously comes up. And, and when I was a kid, there was, uh, you know, boycotts going to South Africa mm. and there was teams going to South Africa and there was always a bit of hoo-ha about that. And that was a recurring thing. Sport and politics are completely different. But It's I don't such think a disingenuous argument. Yeah. Like, I mean, sure. even, the, even the specifics in this case are, are, are well worn. But I think in general, when somebody says, you know, sport and politics don't mix, you're automatically suspicious of somebody who would even think... That. Sure. You know, yeah. you're automatically yeah. going right. Well, what what are you trying to distract me from talking about? Yeah. When you, when you say that sport sure. and politics don't mix, because yeah. it it is clear to the blindest person that the only reason that sport and politics wouldn't mix is because money has decided that it shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the Olympics, you know, medal tables, a lot of it is about prestige. Yeah. And, and, you know, b- before years ago, it was like USSR versus, USSR versus mm. USA and who got the most medals. And um, I mean, even the space race was down to politics, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> another type of race. Um, and, you know, in cycling, uh, it's I mean, it's probably not a coincidence that France is the most visited country in the world. I mean, statistically, it's um, apparently got more tourists than anywhere else. Mm. Um, and a big part of that has to be the Tour de France, because the Tour de France is a visual postcard of the country. Um, and you've got three weeks of these images being being bounced around and photographs, etc., etc. And cycling, probably more so than any other sport, is is a spectacle that's in this landscape. I mean, it's not like, you know, field games or ball games, mm. which are in a stadium and they're pretty homogenous, the stadia. Um, cycling is very much the landscape and you've got these TV shots that show everything off. So um, 
you know, when when the Giro d'Italia started in Northern Ireland and then came to Dublin four years ago, uh, a lot was made of the fantastic scenery mm. and what it would do for tourism and also that it was symbolic, uh, that race, which is kind of interesting in the light of the current race, but it was symbolic of building bridges. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, and gosh, so many races I've been on, the tourism aspect is is huge. It's yeah. a really big part of it. Um, and and I, that's political. Because, it's totally yeah. political. And, and sure. you know, as you even talk about that, I'm trying to see, can I conjure in my head any images of Israel that aren't the usual images. I don't know what the is the Israeli countryside looks like. I don't. Sure. I have no yeah. no mental image of, of of anything outside of say Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Gaza, and and Ever- Hebron, everything else that yeah. that that uh, sure. that that is usually on the news. Yeah, um, the. There's a couple of things. So a guy called Sylvan Adams, who's a Canadian billionaire um, who has moved, he's a Jewish billionaire who's moved to Israel um, in 2014, interestingly, bought a penthouse apartment for 35 million euro, which was the most expensive property deal ever done. (laughs) So the guy has a lot of money and he was uh, a very big force behind the race going to Israel. And he's also got a team called the Israel Cycling Academy. And he said that his goal is is to show the real Israel or what he considers the real Israel. So, you know, again, it's about presenting an image, um, which is fine. But I think, I mean, personally, I feel that you can't present a sanitized image when when there's protesters being shot, etc. Um, and it's not just Israel. I mean, there are many other countries with, with, with issues. So, um, But in this case, I mean, you even heard the phrase last week that was used, you know, sports washing, essentially, sure. you know, just and Amnesty International Amnesty has used International that phrase about it, yeah. this race, yeah, and and they're not the only body and in the, I did a long opinion piece for Cycling Tips that went up uh, um, uh, Thursday evening and uh, I spoke uh, to Noam Chomsky a couple of weeks ago and, and um, he's Jewish, obviously, mm. but he's he's spoken about Israel and, and many other countries in the past and uh, he believes that that the areas it's going into, it's going past the Bedouin villages, and um, he believes that uh, that it is, you know, a, a marketing exercise, and and that it, um, he would he isn't really happy with the idea of the race going there either. Do you think any of this m- makes a difference to to anybody in the race? You mean the riders? Or the, yeah, teams the riders or? or the teams, the managers, yeah. any anybody involved? I'm not sure because what's interesting is that. Uh, and when I was writing the opinion piece, uh, I was trying to think of any teams or riders that have expressed reservations. Um, but cycling, uh, you, you tend not to get people, and maybe it's all sports people, but you tend not to get people who will express political views or reservations. And you know, they're, and they're, you tend not to get uh, people who ask them. You know, right? You know, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah nobody yeah. stands in the mix zone after yeah. a Man City game ask, sure. asking about Qatar. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are twenty-five to or thirty. Abu Dhabi, yeah. Uh, the 24 to 30 uh, d- d- people on a team, uh, you've got eight in the Giro. So if anybody on a team, you know, doesn't feel like going to a certain race or, or feels they can't go to a certain race, it's very easy just to get somebody else. And, and so this never becomes public. So I've no idea if, if teams um, or riders have objections. I don't know that because there's nothing been said. I did speak to, uh, um, I, I mean, I... 
it's, it's probably fine to say um, who he is, but but kind of a very well respected cycling media professional. Um, we just spoke privately, so that's you know I mm. won't name him. But but he also said that he wasn't going. Um, he had reservations about yeah. it as well. So. Um, the director of Amnesty International in the UK has called on journalists to specifically quiz cyclists on sure. their feelings for about cycling through Israel. Yeah, which I think is going to put a certain edge on any post-race sure. comments if that was actually followed through on. Yeah, uh, and I saw actually in the last few days that I think it was the NUJ Ireland uh, and UK have a policy as well that if you're brought to a sporting event or any event I think on invites that you should really carefully consider and, and um, particularly to political hotspots um, so there would be a lot of people that have and, and I think I don't know if that happens in other sports mm. it certainly happens in cycling that, that sort of people, doesn't it doesn't you know you yeah. kind of have to pick your spots with the with these sure. things you know yeah. and you know <clears throat> the, the the makeup of journalist sports person interaction in different sports is is, is different from sport to sport yeah. I mean sure. in cycling you know my image of it and, and I don't know you can educate me but it, my image of it is is you guys standing outside the bus waiting yeah, sure. waiting hopefully for somebody to stop before they <laughs> yeah. get into the air conditioning yeah yeah sure yeah 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 so I don't know how, how much uh, they're going to want to stand there yakking away about yeah, the sure. Israeli-Palestine yeah. yeah. conflict and I would you know? imagine you know the there, there will be an encouragement not to delve into, into mm. that whole aspect. So um, I, if I may just say one more thing about the pol- political aspect. When the race was announced, uh, the Giro d'Italia organisers spoke about um, West Jerusalem. Uh, so they, mm. because it's obviously east and west and, and there's, you know, even Jerusalem itself is is divided and there's, uh, you know, who owns what and there's controversy about the various parts of it. So the Giro organisers made a distinction. They said the race is starting in West Jerusalem um, and immediately uh, two Israeli ministers objected and um, I have the quote here they said uh, in Jerusalem Israel's capital there is no east or west there is only um, one unified Jerusalem which is a very political statement they threatened, they threatened to pull the funding and they threatened to pull yeah. the funding yeah mm-hmm. um, now the funding is it's been said publicly 10 million euro uh, I spoke to somebody in the last few days and they suggested it could be twice that wow. So the Giro d'Italia were faced with, okay, well, do we lose this money or do we change the literature? They changed the literature very, very quickly. Ultimate in sports washing. Um, Onto the the sport itself. I mean, even if this wasn't happening in Israel, it's a a kind of a fascinating race or a very very newsworthy race anyway for the the row and the controversy around Chris Froome. Um, Like, his, his... can, can we call it a failed test? The, 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 his, his, his yeah, the terminology is interesting. Yeah. So um, he, uh, in the Giro d'Italia, or sorry, in the Vuelta right. España, towards the end of last year's Vuelta España, uh, was doing the usual urine tests. And in December, then it emerged that one of those tests had come back as double the maximum permitted uh, amount of salbutamol, um, which is an anti-asthma medication, but in very high uh, doses, uh, there are there's some research to suggest that it can be muscle building and it can have other performance enhancing effects. So he's doubled the permitted dose, um, and uh, this case has currently been dragging on since then. So, yeah, uh, certainly when the Guardian uh, broke the story, they they said failed test. Uh, there's other terminology as mm. well, adverse analytic analytical yeah, finding, yeah. and uh, well, in layman's except. terms, let's say that that there is a failed test hanging over. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah, and yet and yet he's free to race. Uh, yeah, 
Is it, it just looks peculiar from the outside looking in that this has dragged on for so long. Like, well, sure. this was what, eight months ago? Yeah, it's, it's well, it's last September. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's, it's what that, that is eight months. And so he's, he's perfectly free to race. Yeah, it's a specified substance as opposed to a standard banned substance. Okay. So specified substances, I think, just to give a very loose definition, are, are things that, that can occur um, um, you know, can, can occur in medications mm. that are permitted up to a certain amount. Uh, that's that's one example of a specified, mm. specified substance, um, and they are deemed kind of at the provisional level as as less serious than something like EPO or testosterone, uh, which which there's a straight up, you know, you cannot have any amount of this in your system. Um, and with specified substances, what's interesting is that the rules are that they a failed test or or a, a whatever terminology we're going to use about that um, doesn't have to be publicly declared. So this emerged in December. It was leaked, um, and in theory, it it may, without that leak, it could could have remained undisclosed right up to the point where a ruling was made. Um, so I think that's that's possibly one reason why it's. Um, th- there's such a gap between when we heard about it and, and the point now. Um, there's is a bit of an outrage ar- around this. Is, is it directed at Froome or is it directed at, at drugs and sport or is it directed at Team Sky? Um, I think people have um, a degree of fatigue with Team Sky because Team Sky uh, said they were whiter than white when they when they were started and that was one of their main objectives was to prove it was possible to win the Tour de France clean I mean that was that was stated very very clearly at the time and they got a lot of um, brownie points um, and probably helped secure their sponsorship with Sky because of that because you know cycling was going through and has gone through various scandals and around the time um, 2009-2010 you had the Alberta Contador case actually sorry the Contador case emerged in late 2010 so but prior to that you'd had the Floyd Landis affair in 2006 the Michael Rasmussen affair the following year um, so having a clean team was was you know there was a lot of kudos for that uh, and it was seen as a very admirable, admirable goal and since then there's been uh, the Bradley Wiggins case, for example, um, where it was revealed he was he was using injections of Triamcinolone before each of his major objectives, including the 2012 Tour, which he won. Um, Having said he never had a needle. Yeah, in his career yeah. In his in his autobiography, he said the only needles he had were immunisations. I guess when he was when he was a kid, and then some drips when he was severely dehydrated. And then, hey presto, it turns out he was getting injections of one of the most potent corticosteroids, and one which had been used for doping by riders in the past under the pretext of I've got an injury, I need a TUE. Um, and there was a parliamentary inquiry, uh, and they. Um, decided a few months ago that he was using it for performance enhancing purposes so you have this um, you know there's just various things keep cropping up with Sky and then the Froome thing came along Uh, what was what the parliamentary finding into Wiggins and and just the team in general found was that riders were were gaming the TUE system and were using um, substances which are norm are, are permitted under a TUE, but they were using it to try and get a performance benefit. And so, when this Froome case broke, it just felt like more of the same. It's interesting. Froome is such an interesting case. We talked we talked to Ian O'Riordan here a couple of weeks ago about Mo Farah, and we actually brought Froome up in the middle of it. Like these are guys that, you know, uh, all other things being equal. 
you would say are, are among the, the greatest athletes in history almost. You know, like what Froome has done in the Tour de France, if if you'd never heard of doping, if you were just taking everything that is on his Wikipedia page, mm. let's say, before the, the doping in the TUA and whatever, uh, you're going, God, this guy is an amazing cyclist. What, what he has done is absolutely incredible. And yet, it's, it's almost impossible to feel that way about him. Yeah, I think... For me and for others, you know, the, the the questions over Froome, you know, he was a guy who, who didn't do very much at all when he was young. And OK, he came from from Kenya. That's where he grew up and there isn't as much cycling there, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, generally you see phenomenal talent and, and uh, you see it very early. Like Greg LeMond was third in his first tour. He was a junior world champion. Uh, he performed exceptionally well in his first professional races. So generally, you can see class very, very early. And with Froome, there was there was nothing at all until 2011. There was there was some results here and there, but but nothing of uh, to suggest that he was a Grand Tour winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2011, he was about to be dropped by Team Sky, lack of results, uh, and then he finished second in in that year's Vuelta España and would have won if he didn't have to wait for Bradley Wiggins, mm-hmm. who was the designated leader. Uh, turned up the Tour de France next year, won, and has won every Tour apart from 2014 when he crashed out. So, it's it's a really remarkable extra- extraordinary turnaround in a career that started off as as fairly average and mm. then suddenly he you know if you just looked at the second half of his career you'd presume he's one of the greatest riders of all time mm. and and you know i think that's also why why people just just feel a little uneasy well thanks a million for coming in Shane uh, that was fascinating stuff we'll talk to you again as the year goes by and other races coming along uh, thanks very much Pat thanks Maliki thanks Declan over behind the desk uh, thanks to Miguel who was talking to us earlier about the football if you want to get in touch with us you can get us on addedtime at irishtimes.com you can get us both on Twitter and you can tune in again next week to hear way more of this all the best everyone thank you Added Time is sponsored by Bank of Ireland, proudly supporting the Irish Heart Foundation and its CPO for Schools programme, equipping secondary school teachers and students with the skills to save lives.